Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. Word of God says, Ye are the light. Wait a minute. I keep looking back and forth. Here's what I need to do. Pick one and stick with it. There we go. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This, this is one of the most famous, it is perhaps the most famous uh, parable teaching that Jesus gave. That verse is a memory verse, I know, in that, whatever that, what's it called, Awanus or Awanus or whatever it's called. I know that a lot of children memorize that verse, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. But this is really what's been on my mind really for two weeks. Last week was kind of a precursor to this where we went through and looked at all of the verses about Christian behavior and loving one another and um, what the New Testament, man, it had such an abundant amount to say about that. But works, works is really, let's boil it down, works is what has been on my mind a lot. Now, we'll cover it. You guys know when I'm talking about works, I'm not talking about salvation. But, well, the phrase, you're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, that's not just any man that said that. That wasn't Gandhi or Buddha that said that. That was the Lord of glory. That was Jesus Christ said that. You're the salt of the earth. To me, it is a very beautiful picture, really, when we stop and think about it. When we visualize, like if you could back up and get this sort of big picture of the world, this, this world in chaos. What is it really? What is the beauty of this earth if not Christianity? Those people that are living Christian. I mean, the earth itself has natural beauty. Waterfalls are beautiful. Trees are beautiful. Creatures are beautiful. But I mean, in the world of man, we really are the salt of the earth. A lot of people don't really know that the, the Christian history Man, it's the most beautiful history you will ever study. The effect of Christians, that's what I want to keep making this point. I may say Christianity a lot, but without Christians, there is no Christianity. The effect that Christians have had on the whole history of man, because really Christianity became called Christianity at the incarnation of Christ and then his followers. But all of the teachings of it, all of the fundamental principles of it, I mean, the Bible even teaches us that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. So everything, you know, what was fulfilled in this new covenant Christianity was foreshadowed and taught for thousands of years now. And so what I'm getting at is really we could say Abraham was Christian, Moses was Christian, David was Christian. And so the effect of Christianity has left its tremendous mark upon the whole world. And it certainly is the salt of the earth. The things that we have done, I mean, hospitals, really most all hospitals 
in especially early America and before Christians come here and in other countries were started and funded and kept surviving, you know, kept going by donations of Christian people, volunteer labor of Christian people. And of course, because we just watched this football game yesterday, the word volunteer comes to my mind immediately. That's how the Tennessee, you know, that's how those people got their name, though, really. Uh, you know, I hate that they beat us, right? Okay, but <laughs> let's not drag that into the pulpit. But uh, they were known for that. Volunteers. Colleges. In fact, I mean, it's a, it's a, I hate it now. It's a shame, really. It's very, it looks so bad upon our whole nation that our colleges are all liberal. Not all, but I mean the majors, the major ones. And more than just liberal, they're atheistic. And really more than just atheistic, they're anti-theistic. But you know that wasn't always that way? Harvard was started by Christians for Christians. It, at one time, you could not be a working professor at Harvard without having first professed faith in Christ. The reason they have New Testament studies and Old Testament studies still going in those higher echelon schools is because that's actually what they were founded upon. And they produced a lot of very good and sound theologians. But when we also look at mission work, really, I mean, the influence of Christians, the benefit of Christians to the whole world is evident. When Christians go into what was once perhaps a poverty-stricken Poverty, not just financial poverty, but truth poverty stricken. They didn't have the light of the truth. When Christians go and take this light of the truth to these poverty stricken areas, and the people begin to really believe, and there's converts, it begins to change their worldview. And it begin, what happens is this they begin to build a successful society united around loving one another. The real fabric, I have said this so many times, and if you've heard me say it 10 times, well, I'm going to say it 11, and I'm not going to stop at the 11th time, I'll continue to say it. The true fabric of what made this great nation great at the height of its greatness, the true infrastructure, all of the unseen things that keep the daily flow going was not what people thought it was. It was not American ingenuity. It was not the resources of this great land. It was not amber waves of grain. It's not the bridge that is built to cross the Tennessee River down there. It's not the power lines that stretch across the country. It's not the interstate system. That's not what made us what we are. What made us what we are, the true fabric, was Christian values. The things that the Bible says that a Christian must do, keyword, not just ought to do, must do. What do I mean? The, the Bible, Christianity, teaches us that a man is supposed to work, that he's supposed to get up 
and do his job and provide for his family. And that work ethic, this great work ethic that America had, it was a Christian work ethic. It wasn't a Muslim's work ethic. It wasn't a Buddhist work ethic. Certainly wasn't an atheistic work ethic. I'm not saying atheists can't work their fingers to the bone. They can. But upon what foundation do they do that? They borrow that equity from the truth of the Christian worldview. Christianity teaches us not only to work, but to respect one another's property, to put others first, to help one another. And what has really happened in the crumbling of this nation, and that's not what this is about. Today is about y'all. It's about you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. But what has really happened in the whole crumbling of this once great nation is all of the values crumbled out from under the nation and now the bridges will crumble, the roads will crumble, the schools will crumble, the churches will crumble, the stores will crumble, the media, what's, on, what's made in the movies, it'll, the music, everything about it, decaying away evenly across the board. There's no place that you can look. If you're looking at anything that matters, there's no place that you can look where decay is not evident. We're not anymore at this peak of a once great nation. We are full speed into a descent and what has happened, it's not that the government made a bunch of financial decisions. Oh, they certainly did that and continued to. But why did they? Because they lost the values. And they lost the values. The church itself, I'm speaking of the true church, churches such as ours, the true believers, have lost something too. If you look back at these seemingly random, but they weren't, decades of revival, they was always accompanied by something. Christian prayer and Christian practice. Praying and practicing. Revival doesn't come, how do I say this? I mean, God is the, is the author and finisher of revival. But he does, it through, he does it through what we would call agency, which we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. And when Christian people, you can, you can look at revival and always started small in a community somewhere. And it just grows out from there tremendously. Sometimes the Spirit of God really is like a fire. And it just sweeps through. But it starts small and it starts somewhere. But it always is accompanied by works. Now, I was going to go into this big long thing about what is works and what is it not, but it's not necessary. Because we all understand that at the very least when I'm talking about works, I'm talking about doing good things. I do want to say this though. Works is more than labor. Say it that way. Works is more than labor. Works is also love. Works is compassion. Works is also weeping with them that weep. Works is going to church. I mean, y'all know that's true. It's labor for y'all to get here. And it's labor for me to, to get here too and be ready. 
So the works is a lot of things. When we think about works, what I'm getting at is I don't want you to just only think about what the Bible talks about, about the works of the law. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do this, and thou shalt not do that, and thou shalt not do that. No, it's bigger than that. Really, works are actions. In a lot of ways, works is everything that we do. Everything that we do. I suppose there's good works, there's bad works, and perhaps there's neutral works. But when we talk about works from a biblical point of view, we're talking about good works. Let me say this too, and then we'll go on. I thought about this. Any, any, you know, what is it that draws people to the Mennonite people and the Amish people and, or even the Buddhist people? You know, if you're in another country, it's those Tibetan monks maybe. You seem drawn to them. The beautiful things of Christianity, when other religions adopt those things, it appears like that's beautiful there. But we don't need to make the mistake of thinking that, oh, that's the way to go. No, it's not the way to go as far as what they believe. In their ultimate belief system, they're wrong. But they use what we ought to also use, and it draws people in. And that's how you live. How you live. I'll say this two or three more times. But your works weigh ten times more than your words. Ten times more easily, if not a hundred times more. We all know that a man can say, say, say all he wants to say. He can say thousands of words. But you see him do one thing that goes completely against everything that he said. He has undermined his own self. I mean, Paul warned us of this even speaking of himself and how he would approach what we might call the mission field or his behavior in church or his behavior in the workplace, that he was so cautious. He said, lest I myself become a castaway. And he's talking about in the eyes of the people. I don't want to lose, in Paul's words, he don't want to lose his impact for God and his influence and all that. In, well, in another place where he says using his liberty as a stumbling block, and so what I'm getting at is your works. It's beautiful. We can look back at the marks and the monuments left here by our great Christian ancestors. And I want you to think about something that way too. This is extra. This is not even in the sermon, but I think about it all the time. You are a part of the greatest thing that's ever been on planet Earth. There's a lot of honor, I'm sure, for someone who's a Harvard grad. I'm sure there's a lot of honor to, if he was ever a congressman or something like that. To, or maybe to the Chinese, if he was one of the builders and architects of the Great Wall of China. I'm sure there's a lot of honor in that. But the greatest thing that has ever been built and lived out and seen on this planet is Christianity. And you're a part of that. When you read Christian history, I want you to realize, you, here's what I'm getting at, you need to identify yourself more with that than you do American history. American history is beautiful. I'm not tearing down anything about this nation. I'm telling the truth of it, but it's not with bad intentions. But as much as we take this great pride in this American history, or state pride, my goodness, but two most prideful states there is is surely Alabama and Texas. And then maybe New York. I don't know. But I know we got them all here, okay? We represent them all. The least prideful, we won't say where Alan's from. <laughs> yeah. 
But we, we're not only Christians, but we are a part of a heritage. A heritage. There has been something handed to us. Y'all understand that? There's like, you know, you ever seen these big, beautiful farms, fences running for miles, hundreds and hundreds of acres, lots and lots and lots of crops and all this kind of stuff. If you look into the history of that, a lot of times we might, if we're not careful, we look at that with envy. We look at that with jealousy. That was generationally built up over years and years and years and years, handed down from grandfather or great-great-grandfather to great-grandfather to grandfather to father to son and the grandsons and the great-grandsons. And over years and years and years and years, they, knowing in their own heart and mind, they're a part of a great family and they wanted to contribute and they begin to add and build and farm and harvest. And they end up with this, as, as the generations roll on, a big, beautiful farm. That's kind of what we have been given. In a lot of ways, there was global revival about 400 years ago. True born-again Christians set the world on fire again for Christianity in the mid-1600s. It was just after that time that the Bible was translated into English and all that kind of stuff, and it's during an age that they call the Reformation. I don't really like that word. It's, it doesn't matter. It, it's, most people don't care. It was more of a separation of the true people of faith from a false religious system. But anyways, we stand today on the shoulders of giants, really. Whether they be literal martyrs that actually died to death or living martyrs, they didn't die, but they sacrificed it all anyway. Christians and their works and their effort and their saltiness, the salt of the earth, have given future Christians a better world to live in in many ways. Now, I know the world is probably more chaotic than it's ever been, but imagine, if you will, to get my point, take away the influence of the last 200 years of Christianity and tell me where it would be. I don't even know if it would be here. <laughs> you know, salt does many things, but preserving is one of the things that it does. And so, let me say it this way. You have the greatest calling on the planet. Your job is more important than the president's job in a lot of ways. The president has a very important job, but he's not called to be an aid in saving souls, to be a light to the world. So we have, what I'm getting at is, to say you're a Christian, let's reframe this in our minds. I know it has a bad connotation in a lot of ways. And I also know that there's a lot of Christians we don't want to identify ourselves with. But that's their problem. That's not our problem. When we say we're Christian, that ought to be one of the, the in fact, that ought to be the most honorable title that you have. And we ought to begin, let me be careful how I say this too, because there's so many false teachings out there. But we need to be kingdom of God minded more, even more. I'm not saying don't be patriotic. But 
our patriotism for Christ and his kingdom ought to outweigh our patriotism for this nation and its president. Whoever the president is, they may come and go. But we need to be thinking that what the Bible tells us to think, that we're not citizens of this world, that we're citizens of a heavenly country, and that in this world our, our time here is just temporary and we're strangers and pilgrims. And here's the thing, we're not just adopted. We are adopted, praise God for that. We're sons and daughters of God. But we're also hired as employees, hired out. Yes, it's true. You come in the 11th hour, you get the same pay, but guess what? You were hired. <laughs> So you was adopted, but you was also hired. In other words, you're an employee. You're not just a child of God. You're an employee of God. You have something to do. Every one of us. He didn't leave a single one out. You know, even in the talents parable that we didn't get to teach on the ten, the five, the two, or the one. But everyone got something. And so we are employed. We have a job to do. Let's look back at this verse for just a minute. In verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. But look at what it says. But if the salt, now wait a minute. I am the salt. He just said that. He said, you're the salt. If the salt, which means if you, if you have lost your savor or that that makes you salt, that that makes you valuable, that that gives you this flavor of grace. If you, really, if you have lost your salt, it says, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. What does it mean, it? What are we talking about here still? You. <laughs> I mean, really, it's harsh. It's a little bit harsh. But it's a great teaching. If the salt loses its quality, Let's say it that way. If it loses its salt quality, it's preserving quality. In a way, it's sanctifying quality. You know, salt, the value of salt is in the use of it, not the storage of it. Salt becomes valuable when you put it on something. But if it's not used, it's pretty much, it's literally a rock. It's classified as a rock. We sprinkle rock on our food. And we eat rock. But when the salt is used, I'm saying, when it's applied, that's when the real value of it comes out. You can take a whole plate full of food that has no salt on it, and it just doesn't really taste that good. But you can put salt on there, and suddenly it's delicious. And salt affects all different foods different ways. But my point is just that the savoriness, the quality of the salt is in the using of it. And when you use it, if there's nothing in it whatsoever, it's what it says, that it's worth nothing to, but to be trodden under foot of men. Well, because that's what you do with rocks. You make driveways out of them and drive on them. Salt is supposed to be something more than that. We are supposed to be something more than that. I don't think Christ was trying to be mean, but he is making a point that if we stop and think about it, we all get. If a person... An employee or a son is 25, 30 years old, still living at home, playing PlayStation, won't get off the thing, won't go to work, won't weed eat for his mama, won't mow, won't help with groceries. What do we say? That dude's worthless. That's what we say. Somebody needs to kick him out of the house. 
He's not worth anything but to be trodden underfoot as man if there's no change. You see, this is a natural thing that we all know by nature. But he's applying it to the kingdom of God and its citizens, which we are. That is our great calling in this life. Why am I here, if not, but to do something good for man? For God's sake. If it wasn't for that, then why not save me and just take me home now, Lord? We have a reason. We have a cause. Paul, I think, you know, this was in his mind. Oh, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it's needful for you that I stay and do a work. And it's needful. The salt, the world needs its salt right now. It needs. It's not, here's the other thing. It's not just salt. You're also light. So number one, you don't lose your works. We're going to get into some verses quickly because I think I'm probably running out of time. When the salt loses its savor, here's my whole point. The equivalent of that is the Christian losing his zeal for good works. That's what it is. When you have lost your, your first love, your zeal for God, and your zeal to spread the message of God, and even more importantly, the best way to spread a message is to live the message. Because the works outweigh the words. But you're also the light. And the light is in the words too. You're light. You hold the truth, the candle of truth. If you believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you hold the candle of truth in your very soul. And I know we take that for granted in a lot of ways because we've kind of grown up Christian, haven't we? We grew up in a Christianized culture. Even the atheists here a hundred years ago were living good. And so we don't realize what light is really here. And we, we do hide it. You know what hiding your light is? When there's someone who has a problem at work, maybe a husband and wife problem, or a raising their child problem, it could be any sort of thing. And you know the truth is, hey, God said if you'll do this, you'll be blessed. And you don't tell them. Light hid right now. When you don't tell someone, I don't mean obnoxiously rebuking them. No, 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 no. But out of love, sharing with them. Say, hey, brother, if you'll love your wife with everything you've got, these other problems will work themselves out. Especially, now Christian people ought to know this, but especially when you're talking to a lost man and you know that you have some truth that he needs and you don't tell him. You've hid your light. You did. I do it too. But it's selfishness that does it, not love. And when it's, when it's given out of love, it may not be received that well. But the, the amazing thing about truth is it really is a seed. The Word of God really is a seed. So remember that. When you're throwing bits of truth, you're not throwing them apples and oranges. So they're not going to love you for it. You're throwing them seeds, which they can't even eat right then. But it's going to be sown, and they're going to lay there, and they're going to think, maybe he's right. I can't refute that. Maybe I should try that. Maybe it makes sense. And through the light of sanctified living people, that is, we could say, godly living people, Christian living people, through the thousands of candles out there, people come to the gospel. I'm telling you, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. There's nothing greater that you can do for your circle of friends and family and community than to be sure that you live right before. And let me show you a principle that's here, and we'll, we'll close. 
I'm saved by faith, right? Absolutely. By the grace of God, correct. Salvation is by faith alone. In Christ alone. But Christianity is not. It is not. If there are no works done, there is no Christianity. Christianity is a visible thing. You can see it. You can't see faith. You can only see faith lived out. So, I'll just say it this way. If you're not living Christian, if you're not being a Christian, you're not a Christian. I'm not going to say that you're not saved, but just like Jesus says, hey, you might be salt, man. You might be saved. But if the salt has lost its savor, you're worthless for the greater cause. What, what use do I have for you? Get up and do something is kind of the point. And so Christianity is something, let me, let me say it this way, it must be practiced. It must be put into practice. There is no definition of Christianity that just says believe and sit at home and never do anything ever again. There's no, it's not there. And so though we're not saved by works, this is why it really, really, really matters. And let me, I'll take five minutes to develop this, but I really want you to see it. When you see it, you'll never see it any other way. This is all through the Bible. You're not saved by your works, but by your works, other people will be. That's the whole meaning. What does it say? Let your light so shine to who? God? No. Before men. Why? That they may see. They can't see your faith, but that they may see your good works. And what does it mean when it says glorify God? That God is glorified through them seeing your good works. And through that, they come and they say, Hey, I want to know this way that you call Christianity. I want to know this man that you call Christ. It's through them seeing your works. Let me show you another verse. Titus 3.8 This is a faithful saying. And these things I will or want you to affirm constantly this is paul teaching titus who was a minister in a church to do this this is a faithful saying and these things these things which i'm about to tell you i want you to affirm constantly constantly that they which have believed in god might be careful to maintain good works why next sentence for these things are good and profitable unto man. That's why. That's why let your light so shine before man. That they, that they, not you yourself, not God, that they may see your good works and glorify God. I will that thou affirm this constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Why? For it's profitable unto man. It's profitable to your community. It's profitable to the very church you sit in right now. It's profitable to the whole state. And when the whole state does it, it's profitable to the country. And when a country will do it, it's profitable to the entire world. America could have and did in a lot of ways change the whole world for good. And at one time, I believe we did that. But we've abandoned that. Let me show you another verse. Dearly beloved, this is uh, 1 Peter. Let me just tell you these verses. You can read them when you go home if you want to, or you can look them up now. The first one I read was, of course, Matthew 5. The second one was Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The third one is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 
Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. See, we're strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts. That's also works. I'm saying to abstain from fleshly lusts is doing a good work. Abstain from fleshly lusts lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation, which is your life. Honest among the Gentiles, the unbelievers we could say, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, this is the key phrase, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold. Behold means witness, right? See, they have to see it again. It's the light shining before men. That they, by your good works, which they're going to see. This is just assumed. Peter's just assuming they're going to see your good works because he just knows that you're going to do it. That by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, it's the same thing that Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify God, Peter. Let, you know, they speak evil of you, but by the good works that they're going to see, it's going to change them. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. In all things, show thyself. This was Paul again instructing him. And we could say it for ourselves. In all things, show thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech. Let me finish reading this, but say something about that. That cannot be condemned. Why? 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 Why again? Why does all of my goodness matter? That he that is of a contrary part might be ashamed. Might be ashamed. You know, the, the verse goes on, but I want to stop there for just a second. There's the old illustration of the water cooler at work. We're on break. The men gather around. That doesn't really happen anymore. Now they gather around the best Wi-Fi hotspot. But at that water cooler at work is where a lot of vulgar things may be said or may not be said. When someone is saying something that they ought to be ashamed to say, but they're not, but they ought to, for too long, Christian men have not said anything. We have let the shameful things rule. And what this is saying is that you, by sound speech, might actually make them feel ashamed. Because when a guy's sitting there telling a joke about his wife or something else or a dirty joke, they ought to feel ashamed. And listen, you ought not be ashamed to make them feel ashamed. It's not that you're against them. But it's, I mean, you tell me. Which one should actually be the one put to shame? We're ashamed. We're ashamed of the truth that we know. Hey, man, you shouldn't talk that way. You wouldn't say that if she was here. I know that you wouldn't. And so we don't do it. And worse yet, this is my final point. Worse yet, you can not only allow and even laugh and glory in shame, but you can be the one doing it. I, I mean, to me, this is a principle. Number one, we do good works for their sake. But number two, the worst thing you can do. It's one thing to just sit at home and do nothing. Okay? But the worst thing you can do is bad works.
You can bring shame on your family, on this church, on your whole community. And listen, when you, when you bring certain levels of shame, guess what? Now they'll put it across your whole history. Oh, he's a brown. It's expected. He's a brown. How we live and the things that we say matter so much. My point is, I just say it. A Christian should never tell dirty jokes. Never. In any setting, you just shouldn't do it. Christians really shouldn't even laugh at dirty jokes. The Bible says fools, foolish people, fools mock at sin. Fools make a joke of sin. Christian men should never walk around acting feminine, even as a joke. I mean, I want to be careful, man, but it repulses me. It's not funny to me to see what ought to be a young man acting like a sissy and a girl just to be funny and playing a joke. It's not funny. And so I don't laugh at it. And every time I've seen it here, I, my, boy, I, not many of these here, thank God, but in the other church, Boy, I crawled some cases one time. Nearly got me in a lot of trouble. But it did change. It did change. So, let me calm down here for just a second. I don't want y'all to think I... There's nothing I'm upset about right now, and nothing has happened, okay? I promise you. I just want to encourage you. Let me ask you a question. How should the president's son behave? Oh, did the president's son not bring a shame on our whole nation? Who's greater, Biden or your father, God? Oh, I'm sorry, that one hurts me. Because mm. there ain't none greater than my father. Anyone. Who should be held to the highest standard? Me or Biden's son? Me. Me. Do you hold the president or his children to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Because your father is God and you're his children. Everything that we do. You know, the Bible teaches there was... A, by the time Christ came, we know that the Jews was in bad shape. Very much like it's going to be when he comes again. The Christians are going to be in bad shape. But the, one of the harshest things is said to them during that time. These are the people of God. Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. Oh, that's hard to hear. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? The name of God is blasphemed because of how you're living. You see, how we live matters. It matters so much. I'm, it, it's not saving you, but it leads to the salvation of others. Or it also justifies them in their unbelief. They say, man, he ain't no different than me. I don't care what he says he believes. I've heard him talk. He can't bridle his tongue. He's no different than me. People need to see in you a truth lived out and if you don't do it what good are you very harsh words i'm taking them personally for me today because man 
I'm not careful to maintain good works. I, I do let myself get slack. I do excuse myself. I say, oh, I got a lot on me. Or I'm a man. All true, but guess what? Not excuses. Not excuses. Did, I mean, did, was there any excuse that was going to satisfy y'all over Joe Biden's son? Uh-uh. Shouldn't have done it, period. No excuse. We would say, of all people, it definitely shouldn't have been you. We do the same thing to police officers. You can go down the road and do 70 miles an hour all week long, not even think a thing about it. But then a cop passes you by going faster than the speed limit, and you're like, boy, if I was a cop, I'd pull you over right now. Because you ought to know better. We ought to hold ourselves to the highest, highest of standards, really. And let's adopt the practice of instead of making excuses for ourselves, let's just own up to the places we need to move up and get moving up. And, I'm, and that's 100% to me, okay? I'm going to close with that and then let's sing and do the best we can after I've just yelled at y'all for 45 minutes, okay? But listen, it begins now, right? When you sing, sing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. Sing with all you got. Y'all don't think so. But when I'm standing up here preaching, whether or not y'all are paying attention affects me terribly. When Andy's playing that piano, whether or not y'all are singing affects her. I promise you, she's never told me it does. She doesn't have to. I know that it does. When you come, if no one ever, ever, ever said, Bobby Joe, you're an amazing cook, she would not have brought three dishes today. <laughs> she wouldn't have. And praise God we got Bobby Joe. Because I'm telling you what, <laughs> music is a gift, but food is a gift too, okay? But my point is this. Help one another. Even if it's just putting a body up here and going, hmm. Try. Try. We do affect one another so much. We don't like what I'm saying. She did that out of the goodness of her heart. Not to be bragged on, it's like that. But I also know that that goodness of her heart is built up more and more because... Well, she knows that everybody here thinks she's an amazing cook. And so it really helps her to use those talents and gifts. And with Andy, it's the same. And with me, it's the same. And every one of us here. I'm sorry, I don't know what everyone's role is exactly. But we all have one. And so let's, let's try our best to, to help one another in every way that we can. And today, let's, gonna be, let's gather up here and sing. I have no idea what we're singing. I don't know if I'm going to know these songs or not, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to do the best that I can.